a real historian would conduct extensive research and thoroughly examine original documents and seek out best evidence for everything he or she includes. But since I am definitely not a real historian, I am choosing to construct this history from the comments and observations of a collection of not necessarily qualified pundits who are mostly putting their opinions and biases out there without validation. Actually this isn't all that much of a history. It would probably be better characterized as a loosely connected collection of things said by people who thought at the time that what they had to say was worth the time spent by others to listen. The only thing they have in common is that the pronouncements more or less relate to politics. Let me give you an example that will help you decide what I should call it. Ronald Reagan said that politics is supposed to be the second oldest profession. He went on to say, I have come to realize that it bears a very close resemblance to the first. I suspect that Reagan didn't intend this as a self-disclosure but it seems fair to say that it is what it is. Just so you don't conclude that former presidents are the only politicians who are at least influenced if not bought by the rich and powerful, Caroline Baum signed onto the sentiment when she said that members of Congress should be compelled to wear uniforms like NASCAR drivers, so we can identify their corporate sponsors. Keeping the pretense of historical scholarship, let me add that historically, this is a fairly typical view of politics and politicians. A variation on the theme of power and money being the coin of politics and politicians was expressed by Harold Lohman when he pointed out that politicians say they're beefing up our economy but most politicians don't know beef from pork. Of course politicians talk and talk about their being only interested in the welfare and well-being of all the people and exclusively committed to doing what's right for their city, their county, their state, their country. They are only motivated by the desire to do what is right. Without judging. I need to include what may be a reality check on these high intentions. Richard Armour had a somewhat different slant on this high virtue when he noted that it seems to him, for years, or all too long, politics has been concerned with right or left instead of right or wrong. Albert Einstein appears to have agreed. He said that all of us who are concerned for peace and triumph of reason and justice must be keenly aware how small an influence reason and honest good will exert upon events in the political field. The notion of virtue and principle-centered politics, goodwill and dedication to the common good may be present for many if not most men and women who venture into the political arena but whether these high road values can survive the cost of getting elected is an open question. Winston Churchill pondered the issue when he observed that some men pick their party for the sake of their principles, others their principles for the sake of their party. Ambrose Bierce was being even more cynical than Churchill when he argued that politics is but a strife of interests masquerading as a contest of principles, the conduct of public affairs for private advantage. Stuart Udall was a little more abstract but similarly cynical about politics and politicians when he expressed the view that we have confused power with greatness. The notion is that politicians say they aspire to greatness but the reality is that they are generally motivated by the need to get elected and that in turn is driven by power and money. The conclusion is that politics is thus not much more than a somewhat shabby process for distributing second-hand power from those with money to those who will help them get more money. Oscar Emeringer joined in with those who think that politics and politicians sooner or later and most likely sooner are influenced if not driven by power and money, a contest between the haves and have-nots, with the haves always winning. He thought that politics is the gentle art of getting votes from the poor and campaign funds from the rich by promising to protect each from the other. Doug Larson may have made the summary point. 
he said that instead of giving a politician the keys to the city, it might be better to change the locks. I'm sure it was someone fairly astute and perhaps famous but I was not able to get the citation for this piece of political wisdom. There are always too many Democratic congressmen, too many Republican congressmen, and never enough U.S. congressmen. John Broad had the same brand of wishful thinking when he said that Congress should not be like the Super Bowl where you have to have one team that's going to win, and another team that's going to be a loser. History tells us that this level of reason and civil discourse is simply not in the cards. H.L. Mencken put it like this. Under democracy one party always devotes its chief energies to trying to prove that the other party is unfit to rule, and both commonly succeed. In politics, mudslinging is anything bad the opponent says about our candidate, and in contrast, when our candidate does this it is called making a good point, as Richard E. Turner so succinctly put it. The history refers a lot to parties, and to the differences and conflicts among the parties and members of the parties. At a fairly broad level, the main parties are distinguished by leanings toward liberalism and conservatism. Liberalism is, according to William E. Gladstone, trust of the people tempered by prudence. Alternatively, conservatism is distrust of the people tempered by fear. Let's conclude this short history of politics by considering how normal people with conventional values and beliefs end up as politicians in public office. James Harvey Robinson gives us a hint given that to move from normal, thoughtful citizen to politician requires passing through the all-too-familiar political campaign. According to Robinson, political campaigns are by design made into emotional orgies which endeavor to distract attention from the real issues involved, actually paralyzing what slight powers of cerebration man can normally muster. For many and probably most who successfully run the campaign gauntlet, the outcome is political office and a diminished capacity for cerebration. No less a luminary than Clarence Darrow said that when he was a boy he was told that anybody could become president and he's beginning to believe it. There is a reason why it is so though. It's the diminished capacity for cerebration noted earlier. I'm fairly sure that most politicians were at some point in the past reasonably charming children who were seen as having great potential. All went well for them until they voluntarily entered into a political campaign with the explicit goal of becoming a professional politician. As we see, a diminished capacity for cerebration must be assumed to exist even before the hopeful and aspiring throws his or her hat into the ring. That inferred reality is likely what prompted Gore Vidal to counsel that any American who is prepared to run for president should automatically, by definition, be disqualified from ever doing so. There may be a conclusion here but I'm reluctant to draw it. It appears that politics is an attractive venue to which fairly charming children may aspire to and where these fairly charming children will, if successful, become beholding adults with diminished capacity for cerebration. Yes, beholding. They become beholding to the rich and powerful who paid for their chance to be professional politicians.